Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, y'all. I'm Sally, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm really excited to be here with y'all today. I hope that you're having a good day. And if it's not good, I hope it gets a little better after this. June is Pride Month, of course, but it's also National Audiobook Month. And as an audiobook-loving queer gal, I thought it was my duty and personal responsibility to share some recs with y'all. I made an effort here to choose books with a range of queer diversity and genres and also books that have great narration. I know the wrong narrator can turn people off from audiobooks altogether. So if you're new to audiobooks, you want to give them another try, this might be a solid starting point for you. And of course, if you already love audiobooks, as I do, hopefully you'll find a new gem here. Let's dive in. First up is Something to Talk About by Meryl Wilsner, narrated by Georgina Marie and Exie Sands. Exie Sands is one of my favorite, favorite narrators. No offense to the basic pictures. I am a basic bitch. But anyway, that aside... This book is so fun. It is a rom-com with an incredibly thin fake dating setup. It ends up working. It's like this celebrity is photographed on the red carpet making her assistant laugh. And then the tabloids decide that they're a couple and then they decide to keep to fake date. This doesn't make sense. It's okay. We, we set it aside. We set it aside. Because the story itself, I just had a lot of fun with. It was sweet. It was cute. It was heartwarming. I liked the steamy scenes. They really did it for me. I could have used maybe a couple more, but that's okay. And typically, I don't love like workplace dynamic kind of thing in my romance, but I don't know why it works here, but it does. And I hope you have a good time with it. I will say content warnings for outing in this one. Next up is Under Santi We're Here by Johnny, Johnny Garza, narrated by Avi Roca, narrated by Avi Roque. This, I'm going to say right up front, has content warnings for ICE and deportation. It is not a spoiler at all. <laughs> it is in the summary of the book. But this is a YA love story. It's super sweet. Something that I really love about this book, because it does use Spanish and it uses they them pronouns in Spanish and it ungenders certain gendered words. So for that alone, I think that this is a fantastic book to read if you are familiar with Spanish at all. I found that this was a really sweet book. Ahmed is taking a gap year and is an artist and just trying to find their voice. And Santi, they fall in love with Santi. It is a little bit of a love at first sight type of situation. It's sweet, it's heartwarming, and it's really, it packs an emotional punch. I'm pretty sure I cried at least once, which does not typically happen when I read YA. So, you know, it's pretty good. Next up is Ace by Angela Chen, narrated by Natalie Nautis. This is the book that first had me realize that I'm probably a romantic. This is a nonfiction book, really easy, like, really easy to read. It goes by really quickly. And just explores a sexuality and desire and sex and kind of how our society conflates all of those things and how we can kind of start to parse them out. I really, really enjoyed it. I've 
recommended it to a lot of people. If you have any questions around asexuality, you don't fully understand what it is, or maybe you want to, you're questioning your own sexuality. It's a really, really good read for that. And next up we have, We Have Always Been Here, a Queer Muslim Memoir by Samra Habib, narrated by Parmita Vand. This book is beautifully written. Like, it is, the writing in this is stunning. I could not get over it. For that alone, I'd recommend it. But it's also just a really interesting story. Samra grew up in Pakistan. And as refugees, their family then came to Canada and had to deal with bullies and racism, the threat of poverty, like just a lot. An arranged marriage, if I remember correctly, also. And it's just a lot. It's a lot in a short book, but it was well worth the read. Like it was a little rough to get through content warnings for like everything in here, like homophobia, Muslim hate, like all the things are in here. And I also wanted to include a couple of books that I haven't read yet. I wanted to recommend two that I'm dying to read. So first we've got Going by Coastal by Dahlia Adler, narrated by Mara Wilson. You might be wondering, well, Sally, how do you know that this is a great narration if you haven't even read this book yet? Well, it's because Mara Wilson is a fantastic narrator. Okay. And I did read it or did listen to a sample and it was really great. This is also a YA rom-com. It's really sweet. It's about a girl who has to choose between summer in New York with her dad or LA with her estranged mother. Again, I don't read all the summaries, okay? So I don't know all the details of this book. That's all that I needed to know. Dahlia Adler, bisexual rep, YA rom-com. I was sold. That's it. That's all that I need to know. And then, of course, we've got Page Boy by Elliot Page. He narrates him himself. I love a celebrity memoir that's narrated by the author, so already winning. And this is just so many of us contributors here have been dying to read this book. So I cannot wait to get my hands on it. That's it. That's my roundup for you. I hope you get a chance to check some of these out. Let me know what you think. And remember that FBC now offers an audiobook option for your monthly subscription. I'm thrilled about it. Be sure to check out the show notes for more info on that. Happy reading and happy pride. Meet Kitty Collins, fighting the patriarchy one murder at a time. Have you ever walked home at night, keys in hand, ready to throw a punch in self-defense? That's how it all began. My killing spree, I mean. He was following me, that guy from the nightclub that wouldn't leave me alone. I hadn't intended to kill him, of course, but that's where my addiction started. I've got a taste for revenge, and quite frankly, I'm killing it. The new fiercely addictive thriller of 2023, How to Kill Men and Get Away with It by Katie Brent is out now. This is a deliciously dark, hilariously twisted story about friendship, love, and murder. Katie began writing during the Me Too movement and wanted her book to reflect a changing society. The protagonist, Kitty Collins, is a woman who has done everything right, everything expected of a woman in her late 20s. On the outside, she's pretty and inoffensive. She knows how a woman is supposed to behave. But now she's done being the good girl. How to Kill Men and Get Away With It takes a critical look at modern culture, specifically social media's celebrity culture and its absurdities. It also sheds light on the serious issue of male violence against women and girls, envisioning what a world would look like if we treated violence against men in the same almost trivial way. There are some content warnings we'd like to address, including rape, domestic violence, child abuse, childhood trauma, mental health, and, obviously, murder. 
This wickedly clever novel is perfect for fans of Promising Young Woman and Killing Eve. You can purchase How to Kill Men and Get Away With It by Katie Brent on bookshop.org, the HarperCollins website, or anywhere books are sold. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordi, and with us today is Lee Gilmore. Lee is Professor Emerita of English at Ohio State University. He's the author of Tainted Witness, Why We Doubt What Women Say About Their Lives, The Limits of Autobiography, Trauma and Testimony, and Autobiographics, A Feminist Theory of Women's Self-Representation, as well as co-author of Witnessing Girlhood Toward an Intersectional Tradition of Life Writing. Today we'll be discussing her newest book, The Hashtag Me Too Effect, What Happens When We Believe Women. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. Yes. So right off the bat, what inspired you to write this book and what is the hashtag Me Too Effect? I think like so many of us in October of 2017, watching Me Too trend across social media and then the extraordinary uptake of that collective witness, I wanted to understand what changed, what was different. I had just published a book in January 2017 about doubt. And what I saw unfolding before my eyes was an astonishing moment of credibility. I wondered where it had come from, whether it could be sustained, and if a way of understanding that from a feminist perspective might actually enable it to go further. So how do you think the Me Too movement has turned survivors into a credible source? I think that happened through what I call in the book the Me Too effect. And the Me Too effect is the transformation of that survivor model of healing of Me Too, sharing stories and having them heard, into a collective movement for justice that happened when the individual accounts fused into actually an existential demand for the right to be heard by survivors, the right to be considered experts and authorities of their own experience, and to chart a path forward for justice, which meant initially being understood as credible and having the consequences of that credibility translate into accountability for abusers. It differs so profoundly from the previous paradigm in which we silence and dismiss survivor testimony, which is he said, she said. And in that case, it is a falsely individual model that suggests that any particular alleged abuser's denial of an allegation is the same as any potential victim's account of it. And it falsely suggests that the problem of sexual violence is simply individual rather than structural and systemic, that the the protection of abusers is systemic and the harm to survivors is systemic as well. And Me Too, the Me Too effect, broke the back of he said, she said. And what it enabled was a framing of any survivor testimony as potentially credible, not as necessarily credible, but as potentially credible, which was a tremendous difference. And and so the credibility derives from this new framing of all accounts of sexual violence as potentially credible, that is, as accounts that ought to be heard as having a truth value that demands that we change in response to it. Yes, I think that's a great perspective to have because 
I, I want to hear your thoughts on why you think it's sometimes people's knee-jerk reaction or first thought to think that whoever's coming forward is either falsely accusing somebody or just not being honest with what they're saying. Like, why is it our first reaction to doubt people? Yeah, I think it's because we are trained to think that our doubt of women in particular and all and survivors of all genders, that our doubt is rational, appropriate, and even good, that we ought to doubt people when they bring forward allegations of sexual violence. The This depends more upon stereotype and bias than it does upon the facts in any particular case. And the routine and default application of doubt to all survivor testimony makes it very difficult for any particular survivor to be heard. And it's it's really a very pervasive cultural form of judgment. People don't imagine that they're employing stereotype and bias when they doubt any particular account. They sometimes are bad-minded when they do it and are simply being misogynistic and defending in a knee-jerk way anyone any man who's accused. But they are also sometimes simply repeating what seems to be a rational form of judgment. They often express a concern for due process. Survivors have never said they don't want due process, right? So it's a sort of leveraging of inappropriately inflated form of concern to protect abusers rather than to listen to survivors. So I think there are habits and ingrained practices that propel doubt into the public square and that we need to be especially aware of the harm of that and the frequency of that and really of the kind of political and ideological force of it, which is that we often don't have a good self-reflective check on those kinds of reactions. And Me Too offers a way to understand that that doubt has been used as a tool of silencing rather than as a uh, kind of helpful clarification in any kind of investigative inquiry. Yeah, one thing I found surprising while I was reading your book was a section where you were talking about how there were certain women who signed this op-ed affirming men's right to bother. And that kind of just blew my mind. What are your thoughts on that? It was really disappointing, wasn't it? So that was in France in the wake of the breaking allegations of rape against Dominique Strauss-Kahn and and then Harvey Weinstein, famous French actress Catherine Deneuve and famous author, and then, you know, several other sort of bold-faced names signed on to an op-ed saying that this was a kind of an American anti-sec plot and that the French enjoyed seduction and even a little sexual harassment along the way. And so it was this this defense, this very retrograde defense of the norm of sexual violence and the norm of impunity for sexual violence. So it had kind of two effects. One was to suggest that France, a particular, a particular French elite was really stuck in some old, very old fashioned and harmful attitudes about the right of powerful men to harm any women. But also I think by exposing that attitude, it really galvanized people 
to understand that this won't, attitudes towards sexual violence won't just change by exposing predators. It's going to be necessary to change some laws. And in the book, I talk about the very powerful memoir called Consent by Vanessa Springora in that actually resulted in the first age of consent laws in France being on the books prior to her memoir and her very personal discussion of having been sexually groomed and abused as a young person really made a change in attitudes so broadly that the law was updated. So when you when you get those outbursts defending sexual violence, it both exposes the systemic quality of the abuse and points a way toward what needs to be changed. I completely agree. I I would say from my own experience, when all of this started happening, the conversation was always, oh, everything is exaggerated. It's not that bad. This kind of stuff doesn't happen. They're just making a bigger deal out of it. And I kind of went along with it for a little bit because I hadn't necessarily seen it or experienced it. But then, you know, as time moved on, I saw certain things, experienced certain things. And I was like, wow, this couldn't be more accurate to the truth. Like everything that these women and people are coming forward with saying. And so like I can kind of not necessarily understand where certain people are coming from, like with this op-ed, but it's just like, you know, if you don't know what's happening, sometimes you're kind of living with your head in the sands. That's such a good point that, and it, it, it suggests that there's real harm that's done by these cultural myths that minimize the prevalence of sexual violence, the harm, the ongoing harm of sexual violence, the ways in which institutions protect abusers and throw survivors away, simply sacrifice them the disproportional response often toward the person who's been harmed is extraordinary. And it, and, and I think as you're suggesting, if we had a cultural narrative that described the facts of that, certainly we would change our attitudes about it. In place of that, we have a cultural narrative that minimizes harm. And, and in exactly the ways that you said, it's not that bad. It doesn't happen here. It's just him. He's a bad apple. And then some sort of discussion of what she might have done to deserve it. See, right. So all of those cultural stereotypes get recycled to, in effect, kind of create this euphemism around sexual violence. And I think one of the strong impacts of the Me Too movement was for all the people who are in the position that you described of really not having a lot of pictures or a lot of stories or maybe a kind of muted or veiled personal experience of sexual violence, suddenly heard all of these stories in incredibly graphic detail. They heard the the uninterrupted accounts of survivors who described exactly what happened to them. They often heard the words of abusers in their own mouths. So if you think about the E. Jean Carroll case, and the important role of Trump's Access Hollywood tape, where he says, when you're a star, they let you do it. Do anything you want, grab them by the pussy. When you're a star, they let you do it. That, that the, the way in which we have heard that but not listened to it changed after Me Too. 
I think. It becomes harder to simply dismiss sexual violence through euphemistic terms like the right to bother or seduction instead of violence and coercion and harm. Yeah. And in addition to that, I'll mention you talk about it throughout the book as well, how a lot of times either people in positions of authority like the police or whoever survivors are trying to report these cases to, it gets turned into being looked at as regretted consensual sex. Right. Right. The, the, this also goes to the credibility of survivors. The, the notion that there's the, the terrifying specter of the falsely accused man, which is primarily kind of fictional character, has shifted sympathy pretty consistently away from survivors toward whom I think we ought to direct our care and toward any alleged abuser who might be kind of caught up in some kind of disciplinary hearing. So certainly we should, we should care about false accusation. It, there are, there are no survivor organizations I'm aware of that think false accusation is okay. So that's already a little bit of a, of a, a red herring. But the, the idea that Let's see. I want to pause here for a second to make sure, Jory, I really understand like which part of the question you want me to answer there. Because I see, I'm looking down, I'm seeing there's like the one about false accusation. And then there's like, and I'm thinking, do you want me to go there or do you want me to go towards something else? Oh yeah, no, you're totally good. I, I We've definitely gone off the script a little bit. I just yeah. want to kind of, because I didn't even put that in there about the regretted sexual consent. I just think yeah. it's important to know because like while I was reading that, it's like I've definitely, you know, seen and heard people say that, but to see it kind of on the paper in black and white, it's just kind of like, wow, like, why don't we protect these people? Why wouldn't our initial reaction be to believe them and then see, like, if an investigation happens, like, where the facts take us, not, okay, she's just, whoever this person is, is just saying this because they regretted what they did or whatnot, what have you. Yeah, okay, so that makes a lot of sense. All right, so the idea that rape can be described as regretted consensual sex are part of the tactics of blame that are routinely directed at survivors. They, and I think what you can compare, as I try to do in the book, is the system of failure that survivors confront from police to courts to judges and juries to disciplinary boards in corporations and institutions of education, to authorities in religious organizations, and then to friends and family in everyday life, which is that there's a ready-made arsenal of tools to excuse sexually violent behavior at the same time that there, there are tools to dismiss any survivor's allegations of harm. And the, the notion that a rape is regretted consensual sex is particularly pernicious because it seems to navigate us into one of the many interesting areas of sexual violence in law and culture, which is to take away the credibility of survivors and put in its place this idea that nobody knows what really happened. It's to suggest quite falsely that testimony about sexual violence is not evidence when in fact Testimony is evident. It's not the only evidence, but it is evidentiary. And to kind of remove from a survivor the sometimes the strongest 
evidence that she has, the strongest evidence she can muster on her own behalf is to tell her story. And, and so to put in her mouth words that so distort her experience of injury as to make her instead into the dangerous person is, is an extraordinarily damaging tactic. In the book, I try to pick up examples that show the full context of the, of how that works and the impacts that it has. Everything from Chanel Miller's rape case against Brock Turner or a rape on Stanford's campus that so many people knew about when her victim impact statement was published with her consent on BuzzFeed and went viral and had a tremendous influence. And she's subsequently written a memoir about her experience. In the book, I, as a literary scholar, I turn again and again to life writing, to individual, personal, autobiographical accounts that place the experience of sexual violence in someone's life, right? They kind of bring back the context of a whole life and a perspective on that particular aspect and, and, and use that to amplify and extend the power of the personal speaker about sexual violence, because I think that's who hasn't been heard. You know, the wisdom of that, the knowledge of, and expertise of survivors has really been hiding in plain sight. And, and with the Me Too effect, there's a new framing of all of that uh, testimony, all of that life writing as something that can profoundly inform how we understand our obligations to survivors. Exactly. And I think this goes into kind of what you described and called survivor reading. Could you explain what this is and how it could help the hashtag MeToo movement? So, you know, as a, as a feminist literary scholar, I think like so many people, I witness the prevalence of sexual violence in the lives of my students and, and in my colleagues and people I know. And I think, what can I do? I'm just a feminist literary critic. And that I remember I'm a feminist literary critic and I can analyze the patterns that consistently produce doubt. And I can restore the missing pieces of the history and the politics of the Me Too movement. And one technique I have developed in the book is I call reading like a survivor. I lay it out over a a number of chapters, but let me just highlight some of the features here. It's to direct the care and attention that we are used to training on powerful men, typically white, typically cis, typically elite in some way, and to direct it toward the individuals we're used to calling minor characters and to pay attention in different ways. I think when we do that, it increases the likelihood that we won't simply distribute our care and our empathy, our attention, our sense of who deserves justice, whose story ought to be heard in the ways that we're trained to do that. As I talked about earlier, that sort of default setting of our care going first to the abuser rather than to the abused. And to retrain that through the, the kind of enga- an engagement with the complexity of, of accounts that emerge in literature where you don't have to have 
a perfect victim. Everything isn't spelled out and tidy. That instead, we sit with complexities of motive with the inability of characters to exert agency in situations where they're trapped or constrained. And that rather than, you know, requiring that things be black and white, and that's the only way that we can develop a sense of, of ethics and, and justice, instead to understand that we're more likely to hear stories that challenge us, challenge our interpretive skills, not because they're made up, but because they are filled with, with traumatic content and with an extraordinary frustration that there's nothing that we can readily do about them to make, to make things better. So I, do, I think that in this case, what we really have is this model from the humanities of paying attention to complexity and deriving paths forward that are rooted in a clear engagement with that rather than wiping that away and preferring a familiar pattern like he said, she said. You also talk in the book about how there can be a societal impact to the unreliable narrator that we see in literature a lot. And that unreliable narrator a lot of times is a female. So can you talk about how that unreliable narrator in literature impacts us? I think that if you would ask a lot of people what they remember from literature class, that might be something they remember. You know, they might have heard The Great Gatsby and they read you know, like Nick Carraway as an unreliable narrator. And, and it's not that everybody's walking around with literary criticism as their equipment for understanding complex situations. But part of the reason I use that example is that there's an extraordinary trading across boundaries in lots of different domains of life. So ideas from law migrate into everyday life, just as ideas from literature migrate into everyday life. And, and, you know, we don't say like, ooh, that's a, that's an idea from law. I should be pretty aware that it has limitations when I apply it in daily life. We don't, you know, typically that's not how we act. We, it just kind of flows together. And this notion of unreliability generated again and again by the idea that we can't really, you know, sometimes people, you just can't trust people that as simply descriptive as that sounds, right? We probably all have had experiences of that. When applied to women, it amplifies this reservoir of doubt that's already there. So what I'm trying to help us to understand is that the patterns of sexual violence, of doubting women, of impunity for alleged abusers, of a kind of plausible deniability by institutions and by a lot of people who are actually more involved than it's comfortable for them to admit that when we sort of look around there, what we understand is that, that that's the pattern derives from a repetitive dipping into this reservoir of bias and judgment. And so these aren't re- freshly made in the moment transparent responses to particular issues. They're more often, they're a kind of recycling of the very elements that perpetuate sexual violence. And what I've really tried to do in the book is to point out those patterns so that we can stop reproducing the violence that they entail. And in that sense, even something like thinking about the notion of unreliability can enable us to interrupt 
that repetition of those violent norms of judgment that attach doubt to even victims of sexual violence who uh, are in, in, in the quite extreme conditions of, of damage. Now, switching gears a little bit, could you explain how sexual violence and racial violence are connected? And that goes to the patterns as well. Is that this important feminist intellectual legacy of intersectionality that developed by legal theorist Kimberly Crenshaw, I think has helped us to look forward and back to understand the intertwining of multiple forms of oppression as they are, as people find themselves impacted by them. Every instance of gender violence often depends upon and leverages forms of racial violence to do its work. And you can see this again and again in the experiences of systemic harm. And I think that it really helps us to understand the institutional and structural qualities of gender and race bias as they impact any particular individual. And that these derive from long histories, they derive from and are circulated in institutions like the law that we're trained to think of as just and good, and that they make it very difficult for new stories to emerge. I find it particularly compelling to think about Harriet Jacobs, who published a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl in 1861. I think of it as an abolitionist autobiography by a feminist legal theorist. It's also described through the genre of the slave narrative. And Harriet Jacobs, I think, really pro provides a template for me for the narrative activism that defines the Me Too effect. So just to, to talk about her a little bit, it was you know almost 200 years ago. I'll just give you a quote from that book. She knew that, quote, there's no shadow of law to protect Black girls and women from insult, from violence, or even from death. All these are inflicted by fiends who bear the shape of men. A really powerful statement about the intertwining of sexual violence and racial violence in a legal institution of slavery. But because she had no legal recourse as an enslaved person, Harriet Jacobs sought to create a hearing through autobiographical narrative. So it's this alternative option of life writing that she turns to. And this, she roots her personal call to action in an experience of sexual violence. And by talking about Harriet Jacobs, what I'm trying to do is to trace a line from her all the way to Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, to reveal a long-standing tradition of narrative activism. And in the book, I define narrative activism as storytelling in the service of social change. And it was the resurgence of that narrative tradition that propelled Me Too beyond the courts where discussions of sexual violence had really stalled and into a global movement with survivors as authorities and experts on sexual violence and solutions about it. So it wasn't that Me Too was unprecedented. It was that it, there was not an available widespread cultural awareness of the Black feminist lineage in the United States that it so very powerfully drew upon, nor in the grassroots local movements 
globally that it tapped into. So this notion that it came out of nowhere and it was a Hollywood-centric social media campaign, mostly by credible white celebrities about Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, really shows the limitations of understanding it as a breaking story rather than as a breakthrough in history. And in the book, I offer this notion of a breakthrough to help restore thus the lineage that was kind of left um, on the sidelines in the rush to tell that story in October 2017. So how has the Me Too movement redefined or changed what consent is? I think consent is one of those words that has different meanings in different domains. It's important to note that it's been picked up in educational campaigns to center the notion that everyone who's participating in a sexual encounter should be equally willing to offer consent to engage volitionally. Consent doesn't guarantee that sex will be good. It just guarantees that it's volitional. And so there are some wonderful books about that, about the importance of consent as a baseline in, in education about, in, about sex and about agency and bodily autonomy and the integrity that's necessary to carry out a fully hedonic existence. In the law, Consent is consistently described as a gray area, as an area in which once you sort of enter it, nobody knows what happened there. And, and as such, I think in the law, it becomes a weak tool to repurpose for survivor agency because it too typically is co-opted by the he said, she said paradigm. So if he said it was consensual sex and she said it was rape. There's no dispute about the facts. So the facts are taken away as a, as a, as being anchored in the testimony of the person who said it was rape and consent too easily slides onto the he said, she said scale of value to discredit survivors. So I think in the law, it has become difficult to claim the power of consent as this tool that will transform sexual violence. I spoke about Chanel Miller before and her experience of bringing a, a, a rape case in California against Brock Turner. And what happened with her is that the sexual assault occurred when she was unconscious. And when the Turner defense team understood that she would not be able to testify to what happened. They rewrote the story of the sexual assault as a romantic and consensual encounter. And so in that case, consent was used absolutely against the victim, that it became possible within the law to use her unconsciousness as tool and fodder for Brock Turner to claim that the sex was consensual. So consent is very tricky to repurpose in the law for survivors. It as one of those tools that you can't do without, but it does have drawbacks for survivors in the law. So what are you most hopeful of looking forward into the future in the wake of the Me Too effect? 
Oh, thank you for that question, because that's the reason I wrote the book. I think we have really shifted the central question from what can men get away with to what do we owe survivors? And what I have tried to argue for in the book is that if we read life writing by survivors, if we listen to their accounts, then what we hear again and again to counter the pattern of doubt and dismissal that has confronted and weighed down survivor testimony to date is that they ask for very simple things, transparent processes for reporting, fair and independent investigations. When those investigations return findings of harm, proportional responses. And what follows from that are the possibilities for healing and justice through restoration to the community that has so often enabled and shielded abusers and turned its back on survivors. And I think what we really, what I'm most hopeful about is the shift that comes from listening to survivors talk about justice and healing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts with us today, Lee. Thank you so much, Jordan, for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh, oh, oh. Oh, well.